The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. Now, in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Teresa Torres. Many of you may know Teresa as a product discovery coach or author of the fantastic blog, Product Talk. However, before she became a coach, Teresa was actually the CEO of a startup here in Silicon Valley. And she learned a lot of her lessons firsthand about the real struggles and success that you can face as a CEO of a startup here in Silicon Valley. On this podcast, we dive into what the realities are like, the challenges she faced, the things she's learned, and how she's now taken those learnings and starts to share them back with her new business as a product discovery coach. But before all that, how did she get started? I came out of college as a designer, but I was a interaction designer and not a visual designer at a time where people didn't know what interaction design was. So I got a job as a software developer that just did design on the side. And then because I was working at early stage startups, I was also deciding what we were building, but I didn't really know product management was a thing. And I'm then, sure most people didn't as, know it was like a most thing people, stage, right? And I think two years into my second job, my manager came to me one day and said, Teresa, I really think you're a product manager. Figuring out answers to tough problems has always fascinated Teresa. And she has a natural ability to figure things out. But one of the myths she had to learn to unlearn very early in her career was that senior people always knew the right answers. As she discovered, the key to figuring out tough problems is to try lots of different things, get feedback, and move forward when you're facing uncertainty. I think I had a really naive belief that there were right answers in business, that like people more experienced than me knew what to do, and that you know if you just worked long enough, you learned what those right answers were. And there was a moment when... I became the CEO of a startup during a crisis time period. So I had joined the company as a director of product management, ended up running their product and design team, became the VP of operations, and then became the CEO in about a three-year time period, which is crazy in and of itself. Yeah. Our primary revenue stream was recruiting software. So we sold software to companies to help them hire. And I became CEO in the spring of 2009, right during the economic downturn. Nobody was buying recruiting software and we were really struggling. And I remember sitting in a board meeting, asking my board for advice. And it dawned on me that they didn't know the answer. It floored me. Like I remember looking to this moment today, like I can think back to that moment in time. I remember looking around the room going, oh, you have no idea what we should be doing. Great, then we're just gonna do it my way. And it was really freeing. Like it was just this really, huge insight for me of like, there are no right answers and we just got to figure it out and we'll try the best we can and we'll learn from it and we'll go from there. That's really interesting, right? Because so much of like conventional wisdom, tuition is, you know, one person telling other people what to do, even in companies, right? Managers telling employees what to do. Mm -hmm. And especially in sort of our time now where we're working in a very emergent world where uh, complexity is high, technology, innovation to change things all the time. 
you know, people don't know what the next thing is going to be. And really, it's about building systems to help you learn that, which is really what you've started to do in your whole business even today. Yep. So I think both those moments were critical. One was obviously discovering the world of product management has had a huge impact on my sort of what direction I took. But the second one, I think in particular, it really demystified business for me, right? Like if nobody has the right answers, then let's just try some stuff and see what happens. And hopefully we'll learn along the way. And if we're successful in doing that, we'll get somewhere. And it really made, I mean, I was in a room full of white haired male venture capitalist slash attorneys, right? Like I was 32 years old. It was really overwhelming. And it just turned on a dime for me. Like it just gave me a ton of confidence and was like, okay, well, I know how to try things. I know how to get feedback. Let's go from here and we'll see what we can do. So why don't you talk a little bit about that system? You know how to try things, you know how to learn things. You know, how did you develop that or how did you learn that? Or what did you have to unlearn? That's a great question. I'm not sure I know how I learned it. I know some of it I learned as an undergraduate. So I was really fortunate as an undergrad. I was part of a human-centered design program at Stanford. And that introduced this idea of fast feedback cycles and really understand who you're designing for. And you're going to get a lot wrong before you really get it right. And so I think that was a really good foundation. I know plenty of designers that don't apply that broader than design. So I don't think that was 100% of the story. I think maybe the other part of it was the first 10 to 15 years of my professional experience was in early stage startups where we just had to keep trying things. And I actually worked for a lot of startups that they're not the Facebooks and Amazons and the Googles of the world that took off early and just became rocket ships, but more had to take five, six swings to find something that even kind of worked. And so I think that did two things. I mean, it was hard, especially in Silicon Valley. You see all these companies succeeding around you. You can't help but ask, what am I doing wrong? Absolutely, yeah. But it was also really empowering because I learned at a very young age that if you just keep trying, you get closer and closer. And so I feel like I just got to live week over week. That sort of like you start wandering and it's a really broad varying from the path and then eventually it narrows and you find a path. And I think it really just became a big part of who I am and how I think. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's a learned behavior, right? Like you're lucky that you were exposed to some of these ideas in your sort of tuition opportunities as a designer. That You were taught this sort of fundamental of you're not going to get it right the first time. That the iteration is going to help you get it right. And then as you sort of carry that through into your career, you know, let's be honest, like there's a tiny portion of the world that turn into these sort of massive companies, right? Everybody out there is embracing like the challenge, right? The tough part of what it is to get any sort of success in their business, right? And But you're living that and you're applying these same principles and taking a number of tries and you've instituted this system of learning. You know, so how did you start to know when things were working and not working? What did you put in place to help you make those decisions? So in the product, like in the software product world, what's nice is we get pretty good feedback loops. So a lot of my early work was on web-based products. We made sure we instrumented almost everything. We knew what people clicked on. One of the companies that I worked at was an e-commerce company. We knew if people bought things. It was pretty black or white. I'm actually a big sports fan. It's what I like about sports, right? Like, you know if you won or you lost. I think there's something really appealing about the software world because it's the closest we see in business to really being able to measure clear outcomes. Someone bought it or they didn't, or they took the click path that you expected or they didn't. And I think a lot of that 
comes from my background in design and really designing an ideal path and then being able to measure did people take that path and understanding conversion rates and where you might be falling apart. The e-commerce company that I worked for was really dependent upon search engine marketing. So we were spending money to acquire customers, which means if our funnel didn't work on the other end, we were losing a lot of money. Right, it's an expensive way. Right? Yeah, and so that was a really great way to learn optimization and fast iterations and keep trying things. And actually, that was in 2004 to 2006. And I remember in 2011, when the Lean Startup came out, I was like, oh man, this book is finally, someone's describing like how we've been working. It gave a really nice language toolkit to then be able to bring that to other companies and to talk about, here's the power of this. Yeah, and what I really like about what you're describing here is that is, it's a deliberate experimentation that you're aiming for, right? You're thinking about outcomes, like what are we trying to achieve and how will we know if we're getting there and then adapting based on what you're learning, the data you're gathering to show the results you're getting as what you should do, keep doing and do something different. So there's a real system there about what you're trying to do. Yeah, and I think it starts with that outcome focus, which that may be something that's been intuitive to me. Like, I don't know where I learned that. And I know like in that e-commerce startup, nobody in that business was thinking that way. And I actually really served me really well. Like I got to do a lot of things at a very young age that there's no way I would have been exposed to because I asked those questions, right? Because I was looking at, I wanted to understand the whole business and know how the product decisions I was making were impacting whether our SEM was profitable. I was the 10th employee there three weeks after the company was founded. So it was really like a fast paced lesson in how business works. I mean, I just, I think I've had two jobs where I feel like I was paid to get an MBA. I don't have an MBA, but they were equivalent of that. And that was the first of those two. So what was one of those tough moments then as you were sort of trying to grow into these roles and in these opportunities? Where was a moment for you that you were using things that you thought were going to make you successful, but they didn't? Or you had behaviors that you thought had worked for you previously, but weren't? Yeah, I think on the individual level, it was when I became a CEO. So I think as a product leader and a design leader, I worked at small enough companies that I could be involved. I could hold the whole product in my head. I had the strategy in my head. I had other product managers and designers, but I was working very closely with them. I was responsible for sort of coherence across the product. But as soon as I became a CEO, I was no longer a product and design leader, but I was a product design, sales, account management, finance leader. Hiring um, manager. I didn't know how to do any of those things. I mean, literally, I didn't know how to do any of those things. I had to have a conversation with our accountant to have her explain to me the revenue and expenses versus like how we think about cash. Like I just, I didn't know. And I remember I met with a sales advisor because I had never ran a sales team before. My dad is in sales and I called him and was like, give me some books. So I read a bunch of books and I remember I met with a sales advisor and he just started to break down sales to me. And it turns out it's a lot like product because right. with enterprise sales, if you make a certain number of phone calls, some of them convert to demos and you do a certain number of demos. Some of those convert to the next meeting and some of those close and you can measure each step of the process and then you can optimize it. So I quickly focused on building a sales funnel. But what it meant was I could no longer be involved in all the product decisions and all the design decisions. I couldn't even be involved in all the sales decisions. And it took a long time, probably an embarrassingly long time to make that transition. I probably drove my team nuts. I was definitely the bottleneck. I was definitely the hippo, if you're familiar with that <laughs> term. 
the highest paid opinion where the highest paid opinion wins. It just took a long time to let go and like really trust my team and let them sort of own their own domains. Yeah, it's I think one of the toughest transitions for anyone, right, is going from almost like uh, output based, right? Your competency is delivering things and getting stuff done. And then you've got to sort of shift, you know, like instead of you being responsible for delivering things, you've got to be responsible to help other people deliver yeah. things. In a really tough context. So I think it was hard for me for a few reasons. I'm very good at getting things done. Oh, I know. Like yeah. I can produce output like nobody's business and it's very comforting. And then when you're in a really uncertain market, we had two customer bases. One was companies looking to hire and the other was we ran commu- online communities for university alumni associations. And then we helped employers hire out of those communities. Okay, so now it's the middle of the economic downturn. State budgets have dwindled, endowments have shrank. Universities have no money for this nice-to-have engaging alumni. Employers have no money to hire. I think we lost 35% of our revenue in a three-month time span. Wow. And so it was this environment where every decision felt really high stakes. And like just producing things, like generating output, felt like progress. But really, my job was to think bigger picture and what's the strategy that's going to get us out of this. Well, I tried. I probably spent several months trying to do both, but I got pretty clear feedback from everybody on my team and my board and the results that we were getting that I could not physically do both. You know, that resonates with me a lot. And I think for other people as well, like when you're in high stress, high stakes environments, I often think our natural tendencies are to go through the things that we know we're good at and do and get momentum and execute and ship stuff and build things and get things out there. Um, But I imagine, again, in a CEO role, like you can't do the whole company. You can't fix everyone's design. You can't build every piece of software. You can't fix a sales cycle. And you've got to sort of shift again to try and create this environment for other people to succeed. But also you're accountable to the success, which is, I imagine, a, a difficult spot to be. Yeah, we were a small company. I think by the time I became CEO, we were down to about 12 employees. We're doing about a million dollars a year in revenue. Not a very interesting startup. But we had a really compelling customer base. Google was our very first customer that bought our recruiting software, right? So a pretty darn good first customer. We had every major university in the United States. We ran their online communities. So the company had a ton of potential. And so it was really about how do we survive this really tough period? Can we survive this really tough period? And I think the part that surprised me is... I think I was a good people manager before this. Like, I think the product people that worked for me probably liked it, would be my guess. I feel like I tried to balance, like, getting work done with what are your individual goals. But I think being a CEO really taught me a whole different level. Like, I was responsible for keeping this team engaged. And more importantly, I was responsible for their paychecks. And I really felt the weight of that. I think that's was the catalyst for me learning a new way of working is that when I tried to do everything myself, my team revolted, right? And in order to keep my team going in the same direction, I had to let go and let them do more. And they were all my friends. By that point, I had recruited most of our employees. They were like my college buddies. It was some really brutal lessons on what not to do, but it's what got me towards, okay, here's a way to get through this. And how did you start to then recognize that? Was it through reflection? Was it looking back on the outcomes you were aiming for and 
measuring your results to those? What were the moments that sort of helped you also recognize that you're going to be doing some things great, but some areas you want to improve? How did you find the focus or even where to start? Oh, so many areas, so many ways. So I think one, I had two friends in particular that were employees that were very vocal about the things that I was doing wrong. So I got really candid feedback from two engineers in particular that were really unhappy with everything that I did, which was really hard and especially coming from friends, but was really valuable. Mm-hmm. I had a board member, it was actually Jeff Magincalda, who was the CEO of Financial Engines. I believe he's now the CEO of Coursera. He was a lifesaver for me. We got together for breakfast once a month during a time that I feel like I didn't have a lot of support. And he had founded Financial Engines at a pretty young age. We were meeting right as they were going through IPO. He'd been the CEO for 13 years. He was a first-time CEO. And it just helped to have somebody. Like, he just was supportive. And really, in that moment, that was all I needed. It was a safe place to talk about what's going on, what was I struggling with, how do you do this? I felt comfortable telling him, like, I have no idea how to do this. I remember I got into long-distance running while I was the CEO of that company as just sort of like a stress outlet. And I was up in Alaska in Anchorage running my very first marathon. And the morning, like the night before the race, something came up. I don't even remember what about the business that felt like a crisis. And I remember sitting outside the Marriott in Anchorage on the phone with Jeff and him just like walking me. I think it was like board politics, something to do with like two board members not talking to each other or something like that. And he just very calmly walked me through like, here's how you navigate that situation. And that was really helpful. Like he was just a priceless mentor. And then of course the results, right? Like basically my full-time job was to get out and sell and I'd never sold before, but I knew that every month we had a certain dollar amount we had to bring in to make payroll. And we had no salespeople left in the company. It was engineers and a designer and me at that point and our office manager. And what was nice about sales was, again, it's wins and losses, like it's black and white. And so it was a really like harsh reality of, can this work or not? And every day I got feedback on, is it working? And literally like, it was almost like I had a visual in my head, you know, like the campaign graphics of like raising dollars. It was like, yeah, exactly. It was like in my head of like, are we gonna get there this month? And then the next month we started at zero again. It's great to hear as well, though, that you're building this sort of system around yourself, though. You know, you feedback from your team, which is great that you're willing to be open to hear it. Might be tough, but you're listening to it and adapting. Recognizing where there's gaps and you might need help and looking for people who can provide that for you. And then again, but always holding yourself accountable to some things that you're trying to drive, whether it's financial metrics and a sales group or Maybe more the qualitative stuff like having an engaged team and I'm sure you had ways of describing what good looked like for yourself and what you were trying to get to. So how did you then start to figure it out? So what were the sort of small steps you were starting to try to get the outcomes that you wanted? So I think the first piece was our most urgent problem was sales. So I think the first piece was turning it into a product problem, like breaking it down into the sales funnel step by step really collecting data, what's working, what's not. So if I make 300 phone calls this week, how many demos am I getting? For the number of demos that I'm doing, how many are closing? The the advisor that I was working with was able to share, like here's some benchmark metrics you should be able to expect in a good sales process. 
And just like I would in a product funnel, I looked at where's my weakest point in the funnel and I started experimenting. I don't remember where it was, like, but I'll give an example. Like if it was at the demo level, then I would just try to demo differently or hit different sort of benefits. Or if I ran into the same objection over and over again, I would experiment with different ways to address that. What I liked about sales was I used to think that like sales was swarmy and like maybe like a gross part of business. And really, I loved that I got that experience because I think sales and product are exactly the same. Right. And it really allowed me to just deconstruct it and pick one teeny tiny part to solve for. And then once that was no longer my weakest point, move to the next piece. And then on the team side, it really was helping the team see our incremental progress. Um, the other thing that we did was we hit a point where we couldn't cover our payroll. And so we actually asked our employees to sacrifice some of their salary in, in exchange for equity. And when we did that, I explained to all my employees how preferred shares versus common shares work in a startup, which I think most startup employees don't fully understand. We also opened our books. They had full transparency into our finances so they could manage their own view of the uncertainty of our company. I mean, it really changed the nature. Like most of my employees acted like owners because they were. And that really helped because it helped me feel like I wasn't in it on my own. And that actually was probably the biggest lesson for me in letting other people help. Because I had felt this like overwhelming personal responsibility of like, I'm the leader, I have to figure it out. And once we hit that point where all of the, I mean, all the employees had stock options before that, but when you sacrifice salary for equity in a company, it changes everything. You're more like a founder. And I think that's really when we became a team. And it's also where I started to realize, like, I need all of these people. I'm like tearing up thinking about it. Yeah, no, it's a, <laughs> you know, it's a, a powerful story, though. Right? Like, I think, you know, often we talk a lot about transparency in companies or people want to see pay grades, but not necessarily to understand, like, what's great for the business. They're really comparing themselves with the person next to them. Yeah. Right. And the powerful part of the story that you're sharing is, you know, you're giving people information because they've got to make a real tough decision. Yeah. Personal to them. Yeah. It's like, do I want to sacrifice some of my very tacit paycheck? Yeah. And take on more risk. And what you're being is even open with them to say, here's all the data to make that decision. Yeah. I also really learned in that. So we didn't just say, like the way that I structured that conversation with everybody was people had four options. They could cut their pay by 10% and get a small equity package. They could cut their pay by 35% and get a medium equity package. Or they could cut their pay by 50% and get an even bigger equity package. Or they could choose to walk away and they would get a little bit of severance. And I think at this time we had 16 employees and I had an idea of who I needed and what I could afford. And it turned out exactly how I needed it to happen. All the people that I really needed took the 50% deal. People were really committed. And what was crazy is that like, we were nothing like the company they had joined. Like we were not a recruiting company when all these employees joined. We were this like online community, like really inspirational, like invent a new thing kind of company, like riding the front wave of social media. And we became a recruiting company out of need for revenue. And it was really awesome to see this group of people like just commit to that change and to be all in. And I wish there was a happy ending that we had sold the company for millions of dollars and they all had a return. And there's a medium happy story. We, we grew our revenue well enough to pay all our employees back their lost salary. 
And we did sell the company for a non-meaningful amount of money. Nobody's stock options were cashed out, unfortunately. But I think everybody that was in our last sort of 11 would say it was a pretty important experience in their career. Well, I bet that too as well. I bet my equity on, yeah. on that story. Yeah. Right? Because for most people, like how often do they get to have those experiences in companies? Yeah. Right? Where they're fully aware of the commitment that they're making to companies. Most companies try and incent people to stay by offering these shares that have never materialized. Yeah. Even understanding the type of shares that they have and what they're really worth. And, and the odds that they're going to get paid out even with a successful sale. Right? Like a... It's again, these are sort of the myths of that are created. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Everybody becomes uh, never has to work again when to start up IPOs. And it's really yeah. only a couple of people. Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear that story. So moving on then from being in these, like founding these startups and taking leadership roles in them, you're sort of gone back to starting your own business again. And you're teaching people how to do this product discovery, the, the systems that you have intuitively started to implement, whether it was in product, whether it was in sales, whether it was in solving the team challenges and cultural issues that you had to try and grow your business. Yeah. You know, how have you carried that forward into the sort of current state of yourself where you're building this product discovery business and teaching other people how to use these methods to succeed? Yeah. So after we sold that company, I was super burnt out and I really did not want a job. However, we did not sell the company for lots of money, so I needed a job. I consulted for a little bit of time, just took project work here and there. One of those projects turned into another full-time gig where I was ahead of product and design at another startup. I was only there for 13 months. What I learned in that experience was I was probably done working for other people, <laughs> um, which was a good thing to learn. Um, and then that really was the catalyst for, okay, I need to be serious about what am I going to do? And I realized across all the roles that what I loved was developing my team. And I also realized that everywhere I had worked and every company that I'd ever been exposed to through partners, through friends, companies, I saw the same pattern everywhere. Product teams did not spend nearly enough time with their customers. And I felt like we were just making it harder on ourselves than we should be. We were building products that nobody wanted and it just felt like a lot of waste. And this was really personal to me because the last year at my startup where I was a CEO, I really struggled with was what we were working on worth my employees' lives. And it was really hard for me to, I couldn't confidently say yes. And so that was really hard for me as a leader. And so when I looked around the startup world in Silicon Valley, I saw a lot of waste. And I just felt like the smartest people in a whole generation are working on really trivial problems. And even forget trivial problems, like they may be working on really important problems, but they're missing the mark because they just don't spend enough time with their customers. So I decided that's really what I wanted to focus on. And I really wanted to make sure that if we're going to work this hard on hard, complex software, let's get it right. Let's build the right thing. And then that led to just through iteration, a curriculum and a framework and a whole sort of skills map. And now it's this crazy growing beast that has a life of its own. Yeah, well, I think especially for me as another sort of solopreneur, I've always been extremely impressed by the way you run and operate your business. Like you're meticulous about the outcomes that you're always trying to drive, both for your students who maybe take your courses, be those online, in person, 
uh, the way that you have such great focus on where you're going to invest your time to grow your business. One of the things that, you know, I'm guilty of, and I'm sure a lot of other people who start their own businesses, opportunities come and you're like, oh, I better go after that. And what if I don't go after that? Am I going to miss something? And uh, this loss aversion kicks in and I start to panic that if I don't do that work, then no other work will come. I think what I've always admired the way you're very good at like being clear on here's my two or three top outcomes that I'm trying to drive. And when opportunities come in, I use that as a decision-making framework to decide what I'm going to do. How does it support or amplify the direction I'm trying to go? And if it's not, recognize it's not and move forward. And I think that's a really difficult thing to hold yourself accountable to as you're starting a business. And yet you seem to have figured that out. Yeah. What's the trick? Maybe figuring it out. I think I have a guiding principle that helps, which is probably grounded in that startup experience, actually. So the grounding principle for me is create many awesome choices. Like if I'm looking for a new job, I don't want to find a good job. I want to find three good jobs and force myself to make a hard decision. Really what this is, is it's an abundance mindset, right? And I didn't really know that. Like there's sort of this idea of a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. And it's easy to say you should have an abundance mindset. It's really hard to do in practice because everything feels scarce. But I think that challenging CEO startup experience was, I was the CEO for two and a half years. I think it was two and a half years of extreme scarcity. And I think I walked away saying never again. Like I'm never doing this again. And so I think that's what fuels that. Like it really fuels that mantra of like do everything you can to create way more awesome choices than you could possibly do. And so I still get loss aversion, but it's an easier loss aversion because I can't do all five of the awesome choices, but no matter what, I'm going to have an awesome choice. Like there's no wrong decision. It probably means I make things harder on myself than they need to be. Cause like maybe I should just settle for a good, good option. But I think it served me really well. I think I am able to do more in a like healthy way, not in a work around the clock way. I think that it's helped me get really clear on what an awesome choice is for me and for my clients, right? Like I don't want to just give my clients a mediocre option. I want to give them two awesome choices. And so that's a way that has like made an abundance mindset really tangible for me day to day. So give us an example of how you come up with one of those options. I think optionality in software is a really powerful concept. Applying it in your business is a really powerful concept. What are some of the techniques that you use to sort of help yourself see what those potential options might be? Yeah, so I think it really is like a divergent, convergent, like iterative process. So like when I first started consulting, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took any and every project that came my way. And I just asked myself, do you like this or not? And if I liked it, I did more of it. And if I didn't like it, I did less of it, right? And then after a couple of years of doing that, I was like, oh, I really like coaching. And I really like coaching around this specific thing. I'm going to do more of that. And I got to the point where that's all I did. So I still tell people 90% of my consulting work is I coach cross-functional product teams in a 12-week engagement. It's very specific. I do, right? And I get asked to do a million other things. Come teach a workshop. Come assess our product team. Come work on our org structure. I don't do those things. I don't really want to do those things. So I started with like a really broad divergent strategy and then converged on what I thought was the most awesome choice. I mean, that worked for a couple of years and now I'm hitting a point where I feel I need to diverge again. And so I'm experimenting with what are other ways to get my curriculum out there. So I'm 
hosting my first public workshop later this week. And I have another coach that's coaching using my curriculum. And I'm working on turning my curriculum into a couple online courses. And I'm sure in three weeks, I'll have seven more ways that I'm going to write a book about my curriculum, right? I don't know which ones are going to work or which ones I'll like, but I'll try a bunch of things and the ones that are the most awesome, I'll keep. Yeah. I think, again, this is what's really powerful. There's a system to what you're doing. You're not randomly pulling ideas out of anywhere. Uh, You're very clear on the outcomes that you want to do work you really enjoy. And you might try lots of different behaviors or pieces of work to see what you like and what you don't like. And you're systematically doing more of what you like and less of what you don't like and iterating towards really the things that you enjoy the most, which are driving the outcomes that you want. Yeah. And I think this is an important one. So I know a lot of solopreneurs or consultants, they focus on business outcomes, which we should be doing, but they don't focus on personal outcomes. And so for me, I take time at the end of every year in December to do an annual review and then to look forward to the next year. And that's the only time where I focus exclusively on what I need. And really the question I ask myself is how can I make next year more awesome than last year? And I don't mean financially, I mean from a quality of life standpoint. And that's led to some really big shifts in my business. I used to travel all the time, just like most consultants. It hit me in one of my reviews that I don't really like to travel for business. I love to travel for fun, but not for business. And I made a pretty bold move to stop traveling. And I thought it was going to completely dry up all my business. And all it's done is blown my business up because when you tell someone you only do one thing, they want that thing. (laughs) They think there's a reason why you only do that one thing. Um, So that's been really helpful. And that's also what happened this past year. So in December, I started to realize that maybe I was hitting a wall with coaching. Like I still love it. It's still very effective, but I was just starting to feel like I needed a little more diversity in what I was doing to kind of help myself mentally engage. And so I just set sort of a direction for the year of how can I leverage this curriculum that has kind of become this core asset in my business in ways that will keep me excited to do it for another 10 years. And I don't know what that answer is, but I'm excited to experiment and to learn and to figure it out. Well, I'm excited to hear what you do next and where it goes. You know, your ability to sort of figure things out, I think, is a a natural skill. But it's great to be able to make that visible to other people that uh, it isn't necessarily making things up. It isn't down to you can do it or you can't. I think just your willingness to try so many things, your willingness to reflect on what you are achieving and help that calibrate where you want to go next and spin up options for you to experiment with and try what will work and what doesn't, uh, to guide you not only when you were leading these companies, but also just to lead yourself as a person and a business owner today. And I think that's admirable. Thank you. So as you look forward now with your own business and I'm sure what you're going to do next year, where do you see the industry of product management or this discipline of building great companies? What are some of the areas you think we need to unlearn? Yeah, this is a great question. So I focus mostly at the team level. And I think, I actually think it's the most fun level because people early in their careers don't have a lot to unlearn. And they go to conferences and they read the books and they read all the blogs and they want to work that way. And so they come to me and they're eager to learn and we get to work that way. And I love that. What's hard is if the middle managers and the more senior leaders in their organization don't have that same enthusiasm, they run into some pretty big roadblocks. And so I think we have to take more of a full organizational view. So we saw this with Agile, right? So 2001 Agile Manifesto comes out 
It's treated as this like software development project process. Today, 19, 18 years later, we talk about business agility and agile across the organization. I think we're going to see the same thing with an experimental mindset, with continuous innovation. I mean, I think these really are just an extension of agile. I don't think it's anything new, but business is slow to change. And I think we're still at the very beginning of that change. So I'm just, I'm excited to look at like, what are the pieces that feel fun to me that helps chip away at this big problem of how do we help evolve an organization to be more agile, more iterative, more continuous, and really develop. I mean, Peter Seng talks about learning organizations. And I think we're just starting to understand what does that mean? And I think if we can figure it out, we'd all be a lot happier at work. Well, I absolutely agree. It feels like we're at the end of the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we're at the end of the beginning. So look, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. I think a couple of the big takeaways for me from the conversation today is how you actually have applied and can apply product thinking to all areas of the business. It's not necessarily just about product. You can think about your sales funnel, even the hiring business you run, modeling the system, looking for the outcomes you want at each stage and, and applying it really powerful way and system you can use anywhere. I also love this idea of abundance mindset. I'm obviously faculty at Singularity University and we <laughs> talk a lot about abundance, but I think this real example of having creating abundance of options for yourself as an individual, and not only in your business, but for yourself. Like if I have loads of things I could try, it will help me make a find a thing that's really going to pay off exponentially for me. So it's lovely to hear a story of how you apply it to yourself. And I think finally that great point of not just optimizing for business outcomes, but having your own personal outcomes. Yeah. What's going to drive happiness for yourself is just as important um, as what's going to drive happiness for your business. And um, so they've been great uh, moments and lessons for me. So thank you very much for sharing those. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, best of luck with everything. And I look forward to see what you do next. Yeah, great. This has been fun.